Hey guys, it's Toe from the Next Gen Movement, and I'm here to bring you chapter 27, which is about the influence of great leadership. Now, our very own Paris has interviewed the wonderful Carlin Sloan, and they speak all about what makes someone a great leader, how important great leadership is more than important than ever before, especially with what's going on in the politics during a pandemic. Now, not sure if you've heard of Carlin. She is the CEO of Sloan Group International, and that organization is about coaching and consulting to the Fortune 1000 companies worldwide. She is also a best-selling author, and she's about the change you want to see in the world. So would love for you to hear it. Subscribe, share, follow. Um, help us spread the message of the Next Gen Movement to empower the leaders of today and tomorrow. And feel free to reach out if you have any feedback or if you if there's a specific guest you would like us to reach out to. Anyway, looking forward for you to hear the chapter and take care. Welcome to Next Gen Movement, our sole mission to empower tomorrow's leaders by harnessing and unleashing collective wisdom, lessons and experiences of thought leaders within the community. Today on Next Gen Movement, we have Carlin Sloan. Carlin is the founder and CEO of Sloan Group International, a boutique leadership development consulting firm serving Fortune 1000 companies in 23 countries worldwide. Carlin has committed herself to finding out what makes great leaders tick and to supporting leaders to be the change that they wish to see in the world. As a corporate citizen, she is an advocate for triple bottom line reporting, for creating sustainable ways of working and living, and for creating positive organisational communities that work together for the greater good. She is the author of multiple leadership books, including the Amazon bestseller, Inspiring Leadership for Uncertain Times. Welcome, Carlin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I know, it's exciting. We're excited as well. <laughs> it's not very often that we kind of get to speak to someone, you know, in your field that has such a vast experience of dealing with different organisations and people and leadership in general. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, I've even had that happening this morning. I've, I've been with a number of different groups today already and um, really thinking a lot about how we're all in the same boat together, no matter how different we are. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So I guess straight off the bat, how did you even get into leadership development? Well, my, um, my leadership development career kind of happened in a strange way because I was in uh, graduate school for clinical psychology and I got a job with my friend's mother's company. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. I was I was creating psychological models for training people in management skills, mm -hmm. and um, so you know it was it was luck um, that I stumbled upon this really interesting career path because I I worked for this amazing woman Denise Briette, um, and uh, and I really learned a lot from her in my first couple of years um, in leadership development in Silicon Valley, and I learned enough. Um, to be a little dangerous. And then I started my first company when I was in my early 20s. And so I was really uh, right place, right time. And, um, and, I, and I lucked out is really how it worked. Well, I mean, I think that's pretty common with people that, you know, the universe just aligns and you end up falling into something <laughs> that, you know, you never even saw coming. Well, what is it? Um, what was it that kind of clicked for you that made you think, yep, I really, I really enjoy 
this this seems right well it's a, it, it's it's a kind of a weird story because i was working in a place um called hate ashbury psychological services as a okay. clinic manager and a, and a therapist and this was when i was in grad school and and it was it was basically like a a public mental health clinic um, for people who um, were living in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. And uh, anybody who recognizes uh, that place, it was the home of the hippies in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Um, and the summer of love happened there. And there was a lot of really alternative lifestyle stuff and the hate. And, um, and I was working with the kids of those hippies who were coming out of like, you know, they lived communally or they had these really non-traditional upbringing uh, situations. And I was working with a lot of urban poor, uh, people who were having a really tough time adjusting to normal life. Mm. And, um, it, and it was an amazing experience working in that clinic setting. Um, and, and so I did that at night and in the day, my day job was working in Silicon Valley with extremely wealthy executives, uh, doing one-on-one -on -one coaching and helping them manage their teams. And that dichotomy between my day job and my night job was so stark. And, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I loved both of them because I employed the same skills, um, but it was just these really drastically different universes. And there, in, in my therapy work that I was doing um, in that clinic, it was an extremely difficult job. Hmm. And as a young person, I feel like I really wasn't ready for the amount of trauma that I was yeah. receiving. And so just juxtaposing these two worlds, you know, it was a lot easier to be on a yacht with a bunch of executives than it was to be diving into working with the urban poor um, who were really suffering. And, um, and I, I was wrestling with myself because I felt like I, I need to put, you know, pull through and really do a good job. And, um, and one night, uh, the backdrop is I've been having nightmares. It was so mm. difficult. I was really scared in the clinic. There were there were people who threatened me with violence, you know, all sorts of, of things in that environment. Um, and one night I turned on the television. It was about 11 o'clock at night. I was watching the news and I saw one of my clinic patients had burned down their apartment building. Okay. And I said to myself, I am not equipped to deal with this at this time in my life. Yeah. Um, and I, I made a decision that I needed to build up my strength and really learn how to do this business stuff if I was gonna come back and be a therapist. Mm. And so I thought I was doing it temporarily. I really thought, okay, I'm gonna do this corporate thing and mm -hmm. then I'll be ready. Uh, but I stayed in the corporate thing and I just kept going because I just, it, and again, right place, right time. So I was in Silicon Valley. It was the beginning of the internet. And oh my God, when I really leapt in, it was mm. unbelievable uh, the kind of uh, experiences I got to have. And, um, and, you know, I still have that fantasy that someday I'll go back into private practice and do clinical work. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, it, but you never know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Was it um, uncommon for a woman of your age at that time to 
start your own business and to be working in that kind of corporate environment? Um, it probably was, and I was really unaware of that. Yeah. So I come from a, a family of artists and academics. So yep. like my family has no business people in it. <laughs> yep. And, um, and when I was in grad school, I had no idea that I would be going into the business realm. And I also had no, um, no idea how difficult it is for so many people because I was in this rarefied position in Silicon Valley where lots of young people yeah. were starting businesses. So I was around a lot of people of both genders, you know, like just really doing all sorts of things. But um, definitely uh, the engineer pool that I was working with um, was really male. Mm. So I was in a lot of environments where I was the only woman um, who was teaching a class or doing coaching. Um, but it was less about the people who were starting companies and much mm -hmm. more about the population that I was working with because I did know a lot of other women entrepreneurs at the mm -hmm. time. Okay. Uh, I went to a women's college. And so I think that's probably part of it is that I, I was around a lot of women who were, um, you know, really excited to go down that entrepreneur path. Um, but, uh, but certainly male dominant environments, those tech environments, as they yeah. still are, you know, it's yeah. been 20 years and, um, and, and they still have that same flavor. But I worked with a lot of PhD engineers who'd just come off nuclear subs and they were now working in, in this tech sector, like making semiconductors, chip manufacturers. <laughs> and, um, and what a weird world for this yeah. girl who's never had any business experience. <laughs> Certainly no engineer. Um, but I had this specialty in helping people learn how to use psychology um, mm. at work to lead people. And Amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was definitely weird and wonderful. And at that time as well, what a time to kind of get involved. And, you know, the amount yeah, of, I mean, it was young entrepreneurs, only um, young entrepreneurs and things like that, like, you know, myself who are now looking at things and going, you know, Silicon Valley kicking off what a just oh, to be there and to kind of witness the change and the fast paced nature and everything like that. I mean, a lot of people say it's fast paced now, um, but I can imagine what the exploration and the adventure would have been going through every single idea back then. Was it, it was it pretty wild in terms of, you know, fast paced ideas and it creativity. Was. It was, it, it was extremely wild. And I think, um, and you know, there were a lot of people who were before their time, you know, coming up with these amazing things that then, you know, went away. Yep. <laughs> so so yep. it was, it, it went from like these incredible things that just took off from the garage to big, big organizations to people who you thought were going to be really successful and burned out. And I, I developed this real interest in resilience at that time because I was looking at people who um, were very young when they started and either they flourished and endured or they burned out really quickly. And I think, it, I, I think that that has a lot to do with, um, with their level of resilience. Mm. So I started studying resilience at that, at that point in time, looking at the, the examples of people who really thrived over time versus the ones who burned out. Do you think that there's, and I mean, this is kind of an impromptu question, but do you think that there's a connection between um, 
burnout. I mean, you talk about kind of people that you saw that had such promise and such great ideas and you thought they were going to be, you know, transformative in their field and then they burnt out. Do you think that if they had have known, had those more resilient skills or resilience before they burnt out, then they could have been more success? I absolutely do. I, I, and I think they can be learned. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of research about this, but 70% of our resilience is really hardwired. You know, so a lot of that is, is just in our DNA. Like human beings are adaptable and flexible and it is amazing what we can withstand. Mm. Um, but 30% of it is situationally dependent or can be learned. And I do think that that piece is really important. And those people who don't have the sort of backdrop of, of caring relationships um, and community uh, are the ones who are most at risk. Mm -hmm. So I think that we have our own internal world and our own internal resilience, but we also have like the setup of our external world. And I think that part can be uh, overlooked, you know, because you can have all this grit and determination and, you know, stick to it a bit with your idea. But if you don't have that network of people who are there to support you when you fail, uh, I think it can be much harder to come back. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess explain to us a little bit more about resilience. It's a, it can be a word that's, you know, um, thrown around in some circles without necessarily understanding what it may mean. I know that, you know, from our conversations outside of this podcast, that resilience in the States, especially as a term, is probably used more in coaching circles rather than Australia. Tell us a little bit about resilience mm. and your perspective on it and what it means. Yeah, so the dictionary definition of resilience is, is being able to adapt or, or cope well with change and challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would add, no matter what the circumstance, and, I, you know, there, there's a physics term for resilience, it's really about like flexibility, but the, the psychological way of looking at resilience is what, what do you have that uh, enables you to be flexible and adaptive um, during times of stress? And times of stress can be times when there's real difficulty, but they can also be really positive times. And I think we forget that, you know, big life changes that are really exciting are also a stressor. So research on new neuroscience shows that in the brain, uh, we perceive big changes as trauma states. So even if it's like getting married or having a baby or these big things that happen in your life, the first thing our brain does is say, oh my gosh, there's a change. <laughs> How am I going to deal with that? And so overcoming that, overriding our, our uh, stress response, our trauma response is part of resilience. Uh, the ability to reframe things, to see that they are, we can learn from them or grow from them. There's great research on cancer survivors, for example, who talk about, um, you know, this, uh, breast cancer gave me a sense of who I am and what's important to me. Mm. Or it was a gift because I really uh, found out who my friends were. Mm. Or, you know, it's that explanatory style that becomes really important. And we explain things from the perspective of uh, being victimized by them 
or having some sort of volition. And the goal is to feel a sense of power and volition in your life so that you know that you can impact things in a positive way. Um, and that's really the underpinnings of resilience is how we tell stories. Uh, do you tell stories with yourself as the protagonist? <laughs> do you tell stories about your reality as if it's good? Uh, do you tell stories as if you are a victim? Um, and, uh, and those things make a really, really powerful difference. Interesting. So, I mean, if we talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, if we talked about effective leadership and why it's so important, you mentioned some things there about, you know, um, looking at your world and your outer world. Why is effective leadership so important? Well, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic crisis and all you have to do is look at different countries responses and you know the ones that have strong leadership have very different outcomes frankly <laughs> yep, so definitely. um you know where there is no cohesive response and there's no direction um and there isn't a sense that you are represented by your leader it can be very scary for people who are going through a change or a transformation because they're looking for someone. Um, and, uh, and an example that I have from my experience being here in Australia is just there's a very unified message um, that's happening right now. One of my experiences of living here in Australia during this pandemic and sort of seeing the difference between uh, what's happening here and in other countries in which I work. <laughs> so my consciousness is split. I have part of myself that's in the United States or in the UK. Or, um, but, uh, but here in Australia, the message from the politicians, the leaders that we're looking to, are very unifying messages. And they're very much about the collective. Do right by the people around you. Do right by your family. That's why we're staying at home. We're here to take care of each other. There's a very mm. unified, consistent message that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and the messaging in the U.S. is very fragmented. So you have one leader saying one thing, another leader saying another thing, and there isn't a unified response. And there isn't a sense that there is somebody who represents us as a different feeling. And people naturally look to, to people, for, to others, to, for leadership. Um, mm -hmm. And in a vacuum, many people will come... <laughs> will enter that space and so you'll have competing competing messages do you think that you're born a leader personally i do not think that um and this is a bias otherwise i wouldn't be in leadership development um, i i believe that people can develop and grow and I, I do not think that leadership means one thing. I think there's, I, my ideas around this have been, uh, I have been told that this is controversial. I don't think it should be controversial. But mm -hmm. I, I believe that every leader is contextually different. Mm -hmm. And you can't put one person from one great leadership situation into another one easily. So an example that I would have is like, you know, you can't take a great general and make them a talk show host mm. um, and have them be a great leader because the attributes are different <laughs> that yeah. succeed in contexts. So there aren't any 10 steps to great leadership. I know that would be a lot easier to write in a book, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think leadership is very unique. 
And that's why I'm a big believer in coaching because it's really about unique leadership development that's contextual. It's who are you and what are you trying to accomplish in this particular situation? Mm. I think there are elements of, of leadership that transcend uh, that are things like being a great communicator, mm. um, things like being able to inspire a vision that people can work toward. Those things are consistent, uh, mm. but there's a lot of leadership that is really unique and specific. Yeah. And so, for example, in the kind of corporate executive world, would that explain maybe possibly in the way that maybe someone that's done really well at one organization is then moved into another organization and those um the executives of that organization think well we've hit a winner they've done that much at that kind of yes. um, company um do you think that's a reason because they haven't necessarily looked at the unique criteria for oh, that absolutely. role Absolutely. I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot to be said for actual assessment of people's skill set and look and mapping their, who they really are and their real skill set to the actual task at hand versus saying, oh, this guy's a rock star. He's done so well in this job. He might, I'm sure he'll be perfect in this other job. Um, you know, it's a little bit more complex than that. And there are leaders who are extremely charismatic um, who people say, oh, that guy's a great leader. And charisma is only one small part of leadership. Mm -hmm. I, I think we can get carried away with, you know, the fact that somebody can stand up and speak or really enroll people in an idea and forget that there's also results that they need to get. <laughs> so there's some business yeah. acumen behind it and, and there's, you know, being able to manage resources and make strategic decisions. Those are all aspects of leadership that we need to take into consideration too, um, instead of the sort of cult of celebrity that we've created, uh, as if, uh, you know, that charisma is the only element that's important. Which, you know, when you think about social media and the looking to celebrities or things like that, I mean, that totally rings true where we look to them for leadership and advice and they're probably not always the best people to look to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, Kanye is running for U.S. president oh. now. So. <laughs> I personally, he just announced yesterday. I am personally one of Taylor Swift's biggest fans. So if we're talking about celebrity beats, definitely. <laughs> but it's 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 one of those things. And how do you feel about um, younger generations and the power of? celebrity and influencer and social mm. media i mean what do you think you're a mum, and yeah you know, what do you think uh, do you think that maybe the tides are changing i mean generationally are they still looking to those types of or is it getting worse what's your opinion it's a really good question and you know i think the truth of the matter is like there's a so in leadership there's really old school leadership is really dominant Right. And it's about hierarchy and there's one person at the top and you respect the person at the top because they must be right. And I love that we've broken that down and said, no, you know, leadership does not mean that somebody's better than the other person. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we have to start translating that more into social media and um, 
And, you know, making collective decisions has become so powerful in organizations. Organizations have become more matrixed and more flat and less authoritarian and much more collaborative. And I think that's a hallmark of these up and coming generations at work. It's like, you know, we're really looking at groups working together more efficiently. And, you know, people who are hyper connected, whether it's online or, or in person, you know, have power. Mm. I, the the question of influencers, though, um, I think we've got to be a little bit smarter about who we pick to represent us. Yep. <laughs> so, so you know, if you're if if you've got an amazing collective of people who all share values and ideas, you know, we have to be careful about who's representing that. Mm. Um, and I do think it has to do with character strength. Um, there's uh, a beautiful project that's out right now called the Virtues Project. Mm -hmm. And I've been using it um, in some of our work with leadership development. And, you know, it, they look at character strengths in the form of the virtues that are across mm -hmm. all cultures. And so you might have a virtue of reliability or a virtue of joyfulness or truthfulness or whatever those, you know, human characteristics are that are about being a good person. I think if we stepped back and started thinking about virtues and, and started thinking about who represents us mm. in terms of who has those character strengths, that would be a much better way to evaluate people than who looks the best and has the biggest voice. Yep, definitely. I think that's, that's a really good point. And, you know, one of your themes that, you know, I know you believe really strongly and comes through all of your work is about, you know, creating a better world and a, a uh, more positive, not necessarily positive in there is no negativity, but positive as in unified and appreciative and gracious and caring and kind, yeah. collective Absolutely. kind of consciousness. Absolutely. And I do want to say something about that, you know, that idea that being positive and doing good doesn't mean that you don't acknowledge what's wrong. Mm. <laughs> because yep. I think there's a tendency to think that those of us who sort of argue for positivity and optimism are sticking our heads in the sand. And the, mm. and the truth of the matter is, we've got to fight for acknowledging what's real and then focusing on a positive future vision. Mm. Instead of let's go all the way toward the other side, which is just everything's perfect. It's not yep. all perfect. That's the truth of, you know, positivity is only really valuable and useful because it's transcending something else. Yes. <laughs> not not because it's the only state we can ever be in, um, yep. but because it really helps us cope with the reality of being human. Um, and I am a, like a warrior for positivity at work. There's some amazing research about uh, the ratio of positive to negative discussion at work. So this mm -hmm. is a fun one. So uh, I, I like to think about this in terms of um, you know, organizational culture. So there was a researcher named Barbara Fredrickson who looked at what she called water cooler conversation. And like, what are the conversations that people are having in your company about the company or each other? And there's a, there's a ratio of positive to negative in every organization. And I'll let you guess what the optimal ratios are for <laughs> good to bad conversations. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I'll tell you the truth. Because a lot of people have, have a specific guess. So what would you guess is a good ratio of like good conversation to bad conversation or positives to negatives? I'd say 
seventy percent positive. Yeah, you're 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 in the right ballpark for sure because it's at least three to one positives. Yeah, okay. At least yeah. all the way up to nine to one. Yeah. Okay. Once, once you go over nine, then you're in like la la land because you're just being so positive <laughs> that there's you're in denial. But yeah. I. I think those ratios are really interesting to look for and, mm. and, and what we're contributing to because, you know, you can get really unconscious as a leader and start complaining yourself, which mm. is not what you want to set up on your team. Um, but, you know, you want to really watch, you, you know, what, are, what words are you putting out there? How mm. positive are you being? Um, and, uh, and the ratio is important. It doesn't mean we ignore the negatives. It means we balance it out um, and look for the good, the true, the better, and the positive, which is a phrase from David Coop Ryder, who's a professor at Case Western University. Mm. Um, but uh, I love that concept, the good, the true, the better, and the positive. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, the balance that you talk about, you know, positive, positivity and negative, and even, you know, um, I've read some stuff that you've written around the balance between crisis management and immediate issues that you have to deal with as a leader and future planning and that there mm -hmm. is even a ratio or a balance in that as a leader that you you know when you get sucked down too far in one one way and you ignore the other that it's not actually beneficial could you talk a little bit about that balance and what you think is important for leaders especially now with the state of the world yeah. absolutely i mean i think there's a there's this idea that comes from uh, some uh, folks who wrote uh, Good to Great and Built to Last, um, mm -hmm. Collins and Porus, I think it is. And they talked about, you know, preserving the core and then uh, building the future at the same time. And if we're going to preserve the positive core, you know, what is the core element of your work, your business that really serves your customer that you're really great at? Keep on with that. <laughs> keep yeah. focused on that at the same time that you build the bridge as you walk on it right because I, I think there's a there's a tendency to either hunker down into what we've always done we've got to focus on that mm -hmm. or let's go all the way into the future and just do something completely different it's that balance between the two that really can help an organization transcend over time Mm -hmm. And that's organizational resilience, not individual resilience. But that's really looking at how do you how do you grow um, in the in the wake of the pandemic. If you think about the number of organizations that really have to focus on this right now, there are a lot of organizations that um, have had to really abandon what they've been doing and start making hand sanitizer. Yeah, that's you know, and that's good too because that's really focusing on the greater good. Um, but if they're not preserving some of their core, like their core audience that needs the hand sanitizer, then there's a problem. So mm. they've got to have a balance of both. But I do think it is a really important time to look at what are the best practices in leading in a crisis? Well, step one uh, is to take an inventory of the best aspects of your organization. Mm. And the positive slant, you know, what we, what we focus on broadens and builds. Mm. Focusing on what's wrong, we will continue to reiterate and reaffirm a story about what's wrong mm. um, and, and then bring people's level of engagement down instead of up. So yeah. what we want to do is we want to look at 
what is working and what can we grow and broaden and build from what's good. Uh, that philosophy in itself is so helpful during a crisis because it's so easy to, to get into problem solving mode where we think that because we're good problem solvers, that's the best thing to apply to this situation is like, okay, we've got a problem, let's solve it. Well, the truth of the matter is the problem will be much better solved by looking at what's working now and what's the vision we want to achieve in the future. What's, what are the possibilities? What's the positive future vision? What would things look like if we did this right? Mm. There's an exercise that I've done with a number of clients that's around uh, problem solving from a positive perspective. And we did this with the... Um, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, actually, it was a really interesting group of people to do this with, is, you know, nuclear scientists. Mm. Um, and so it's looking at, as a manager or leader, how do you get your people to come to you with problems without disempowering them? Mm. And, um, and so we started doing this thing where people would come with having filled out a problem statement. And the problem statement had to say, here's what this would look like if we solved the problem. Okay. So instead of just saying, here's a problem, I'm going to complain about it, or here's a problem I'm worried about, it's here's a problem, and the opportunity within this problem is X. It was really exciting, and, and people implemented it to, to really great results because it starts people thinking about solution, but it also starts th people thinking about what is possible instead of just solving the problem there there and then they think about well what's possible if we did solve the problem yeah and changing that perspective as well and giving yourself some space to kind yeah. of breathe and process as so i think that you know <laughs> from looking around the entire world at the moment with every kind of aspect that's going on it is there is really little to no space and pausing and everyone's just kind of rushed forward as a collective. And it's good to just kind of take stock and have a think about things from a more kind of objective way of where are we heading? What do we, what do we really want this to look like? Yeah, For definitely sure. true. It's so easy to scramble. And, and that whole thing about problem solving, you know, m many people in leadership and management and organizations are in those roles because they're great at problem solving. Mm. Um, and they have critical thinking skills. And I, I tend to think in these terms of like, we don't want to give up our critical thinking skills, mm. but we want to develop um, what I would call the appreciative eye. So we have a critical eye and we can put our critical eye to things, but what is the appreciative eye? Well, the appreciative eye is seeing what's good mm. and being able to broaden and build that thing. Mm. Um, build val building value, you know, appreciation really means building value. Mm. Is there, is there some kind of, I mean, there might be research on it and I'm just kind of asking the question, but something around humanity and our uh, tendency to be drawn towards the negative. I mean, if you think about people talking about their relationships, very few people will go down the street singing about how in love they are, but a lot of them will complain <laughs> about the argument that they've just had. Or, right. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's so, there's almost a tendency. I know I mean, Australian culture is 
obviously a unique one in the way that we are quite dry and sarcastic about everything that we talk about. But is there some kind of reason that we do that? And we're drawn it's a, to that it's kind a of great system. question. It's a great question. I, I tend to think of this as like evolutionary biology. You know, we're, we look at the negatives because we want to avoid them. We want to be yeah. safe. And so how, how are we going to be safe? Well, if we're really looking carefully about what it's about to attack us, <laughs> you know, if you, if you have in your DNA that you, you know, you run when there's a saber tooth tiger, you know, we're, yeah. we're really primal in that way. And so, so we gravitate toward, um, you know, the negatives sometimes because we want to protect ourselves from those negative things. The problem is that that becomes a self-reinforcing trap. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, you know, I tend to think in terms of like, if, if there's a goal for this human experience, you know, one of the things that we have, we are capable of is transcending that. Mm. I think this, it's an amazing thing about human beings that, you know, we're hardwired to, um, to survive and we're hardwired to, you know, run from the saber tooth tiger, but we're also hardwired to see what's good and mm. to repattern ourselves and to have joy. And, um, and I just think that that's a profound element of humanity and in studying resilience, you know, you get all these amazing stories about people who've gone through terrible ordeals and come out the other side better, you know, mm -hmm. who, who come out the other side happier or contributing something uh, to their world in a really positive way. And, you know, my guess is if you can think of any hero of yours, like mm -hmm. anyone who you really admire, they are probably some somebody who has transcended something mm, yeah. <laughs> to become who they are. Um, it's just a, it's it's one of those magic things about about uh, the human experience. So um, so I, I love thinking in those terms, um, and and it's also good to forgive yourself for mm. being magnetized to the negative. You know, look at look at what we uh, respond to in media. You know, and yeah. we, we respond so well. I mean, in fact, we have this Pavlovian response to negative media and it becomes like, oh, I need to see the next chapter of this reality show about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like this yep. horrible drama that we're so attracted to. Um, and, and we have to forgive ourselves for that because you know what? We're really trying to cope with something really intense. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and seeing it and having adrenaline that pumps when you see that stuff, part of how we're wired. Yeah. Um, it's not as exciting to go and read the good news. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know, I wish it, it was. It really isn't. I wish yeah. it was too. I, I wish I wanted to, you know, wake up and open the happy the happy news blog um, mm -hmm. about the good things that are happening in the world. And and yet. Uh, my attention can go toward the most dramatic worst stuff. Mm. Um, and, but if we, if we decide that we want to focus on what's, what's true, good, better, and possible, mm. um, then we can start looking at things like what's happening right now with the amount of social upheaval and social unrest. The metaphor that I would give you is like, you know, when a caterpillar changes into a butterfly, mm. they're inside this chrysalis and it's just a, a, a <laughs> that they're swimming inside mm. and you can't hurt, you can't rush the process. Yeah. It's all messy in there. Mm. 
But if you cut it open, there's never going to be a butterfly because there's not a chance to, to really bake in that cocoon. And yeah. I, I, I get this metaphor from a colleague of mine who was saying this this morning on another call with me about this the concept of what if society is really inside of this chrysalis right now and you know we just can't can't open it up to a butterfly until we can it just has to go through these iterations and machinations and people are suffering mm. and people are transcending suffering as well both are happening yeah. at the same time and i think the most important thing that you've mentioned is that you can't rush it and you'd and yeah. i guess People are so impatient, especially with the increase of technology and how instantaneous it is, especially millennials. Perfect example is myself of I can access anything in 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> you know, why is it that things aren't happening as quickly as they should be right now? But, you know, but you yeah. can't rush it. You just have to wait. Yeah. And we don't and know when it's know. actually going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're all going a little bit nuts in lockdown, you know, mm -hmm. it's really hard to be patient and wait and not go out and wear your mask if you're in a place that requires a mask and all these things are, are you know, it's, it would be really nice if we knew that it would have an instant response mm -hmm. of the positive and then, uh, you know, we would be done with the pandemic already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's also a human attribute is like, we want those things. But I, I think because things are so easy to get, you know, mm. for those of us who are privileged to be, uh, you know, on the internet and have a computer um, and have enough money to order takeaway, mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like I can have delivery at my door in five minutes. Yep. And so that instant gratification uh, makes us a little bit less patient. It is true yeah it's, yeah it's also it's it's very interesting in terms of you know we never know when it's going to end or what's going to happen or anything like that and that is kind of one of the beautiful sides of humanity and our existence is that we just don't always know and that's exciting sometimes sometimes it's not sometimes it sucks but <laughs> we can try and try and change our perspective as you said kind of rewire our brains to think about well okay what could be on the other side of this maybe it's something we've always been longing for but we needed a kick in a certain direction in order to make it happen yeah there's there's a beautiful uh it's a native american phrase um and i i can't remember i think it's hopi but it's uh you know we're the leaders we've been waiting for mm. and i think when you think about the opportunity for the generations that are coming up right now mm. um this is our time mm. you know it's it's right now there there's enormous opportunity with the kind of connection the connectivity we have where we can all connect globally in the same experience in the same moment mm. online um and and taking the mantle of personal responsibility and being a leader, it's a big deal, mm. but we all need to do it on some level. You know, um, it, it's, there isn't some magic thing that's going to happen that's going to transform everything um, because of one person. It's yeah. really because of all. Um, so when you talk about, you know, what I think about previous generations and, and then these the next gen 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think next gen is, is really, it's, it's about ourselves as collective leaders. Yeah. You know? Really exciting. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, we're about to run out of time and I really want to talk to you quickly about your latest book. So inspiring leadership for uncertain times. Obviously we are currently in uncertain times and you mentioned before that there is no kind of 10 steps to great leadership in your opinion, which I agree with. And I think there is way, there are way too many books that say read this and you will be a magnificent leader, mm-hmm. which is just way too easy. That's just too easy. <laughs> um, but yeah, tell us about your book. Yeah. So um, really a labor of love. I, I wrote a version of this book about 10 years ago um, and then rewrote it um, because of what's been happening in the last six months with COVID. And, um, and I'm, I'm really excited because again, now is the time, right? This is the time we need these things. Um, There, there is a four step process in the book. Mm -hmm. It's not about four things that make you a great leader, but it's a four step process. And it's um, looking at, how do you accept what's real and focus on a positive future, mm-hmm. build relationships and community, view challenges as opportunities, and then practicing physical and mental discipline. Mm. And those four, those four things, I call it a process of alignment. Mm-hmm. And you can use it with yourself and with your team and with your organization. And there are a lot of stories in the book about people who are doing this well, um, including in you know, during this pandemic, um, because I really thought it'd be great to have examples of companies mm. and leaders who are doing a great job, um, because there are incredible stories out there right now, um, including people who are, you know, just doing acts of selfless service that are just mm. beautiful, inspiring. And I do think there is always an opportunity when there is a crisis. And the opportunity right now for you and your team and your organization uh, is unique. And it's really, Mm. the book is designed for you to think about your own unique situation and apply Mm. some of the principles to it. Um, And then to just let you know that there's other people doing the same thing right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and we're in the boat together. Um, But it was really a joy to write and rewrite. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm I'm excited that it's out there and that people are actually reading it is very gratifying. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I guess for all of our listeners, you can find that on Amazon, Google it, do whatever you feel is the way you <laughs> want to get to the information you want to get to really. Yeah, um, yep. But okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Carlin. We really appreciate it. Um, you've given us some amazing insights. Is there anything that you'd kind of end on the tips to younger generations that are looking at building, you know, building their own resilience. Yeah, Things well, I'll just, at home. I'll just in, invite people to participate on our new app, um, which mm-hmm. you can actually get for a month for free um, in the App Store or for Android. Um, it's called Inspiring Leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's at inspiringleadership.io, or you can find it on our website, sloangroupinternational.com. Um, and we're doing right now, we're doing a 21 day happiness challenge. Um, so anybody who wants to join that us for 10 happy. minutes of happiness every day, yes. it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's really great. And it's great to connect to other people across the world. And we have people from all different countries and 
Um, and it's just a, a lovely support mechanism as you go through this. And it's also people who are leading and managing others and really looking to get supported in that as well. So um, you can join us there. And, um, and it's really a privilege to do this work. And I'll, I'll mm. leave you with one, one idea, which is just be kind to yourself. Um, because during times of stress and challenge, if we're not nice to ourselves, um, if we're self-critical and put that critical eye on ourselves, it can be really painful. Um, mm. and, uh, and so, you know, start, start with you, uh, mm -hmm. and those concentric circles, uh, grow outward from you to your team, to your organization, to the world. And, um, and so that's what I will leave you with is kindness. Amazing. Thank you so much again, Cullen. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Paris.